Hello everyone, it's me, Laura Lee Siemens, and welcome back. It's Thursday, January the 17th, and today we're talking pipelines, the normalization of pedophilia in our society, and the reason girls need to flee Saudi Arabia. everyone if you're like me and find January to be just a really blah month well good news we're at least halfway through it now my teens are in exam mode because it's next week so hopefully your January is going well for those in the London area I'm going to be speaking at a right to life event next week and I'm pretty sure that there's still tickets I'm gonna put a link in the show notes and if you want information um, on the adoption process or how you can support foster or adoptive families. This is a night you don't want to miss. So it starts at seven o'clock uh, and it's being held at St. Peter's in London. So uh, check out the notes below and try to get there if you can. All right, we're going to be talking a little bit more about Right to Life at the end of this podcast, but talking about information on fostering and adoption, I have some really exciting news. So a few months ago, I did a series on adoption and fostering and it was a huge hit. So we actually have a brand new podcast coming. We're going to have me and another foster adoptive mom on the show as hosts. And we're gonna have some other parents coming on as guests. And we're gonna be talking about parenting foster and adoptive kids from a Christian perspective. So by next week, I'm going to have more information and a link so you can subscribe to the new podcast. And I know you don't want to miss that. Uh, This podcast will keep happening, the one that you're listening to right now. So I'm going to actually have two podcasts going at the same time. Both of them are going to be on my website, which you can check out at lauraleesiemens.com. So please go there. We have videos, blogs, podcasts. Also, though, I have a lot of people who listen to the podcast on the website, which I love because I love when you come on the website. There's so much other stuff on there other than our podcast. But if you're watching right now from the website, can you just do me a favor and subscribe on iTunes or Stitchers or Google Play, any of those ones, and then leave a five-star review because that actually helps um, because it moves the podcast up and it becomes more visible. All right, so that was a really long start to this podcast, but we really need to jump into things. So when I'm deciding on what news stories to cover, I try to find ones that are either not being covered or that just confuse me. The ones that confuse me usually lead to the history behind the news story because I want to know the why behind the news. So this week, I'm looking at protests that happened in the BC at the pipeline. So to understand that, I'm actually going to cover a story that I covered last year. So unless you've been living in a hole for the last few years, you're aware of the absolute desperate situation for the First Nations in the northern part of Canada. In the upper parts of BC and Alberta, the First Nations community have about a 90% unemployment rate. 90%. 
So enter the Eagle Spirit Pipeline. So the Eagle Spirit is made up of more than 30 First Nations from Upper Alberta and BC. And their plan is to build a pipeline that will move oil from Alberta to BC, where it can then be shipped to Asia. This pipeline is twice the size of the Northern Gateway Project. And this pipeline would ship 1 million barrels a day. And that would give the First Nations 50 to $60 million a day. This would not only give jobs, that would completely end the whole 90% unemployment problem, but it would also give the people living in these communities a chance to make millions of dollars. So what's stopping them? Justin Trudeau passed a bill called Bill C-48, and that bill does not allow oil to be loaded in ports in northern BC. That's crazy, because we allow oil to be loaded in ports in Vancouver, which is also in BC. We allow oil to be drilled off the shores of Newfoundland. We have ports on the St. Lawrence River. We can import oil from horrible countries like Saudi Arabia or Nigeria, but nothing from BC. The United States actually makes $40 a barrel sending us oil. So that's about $50 million a day, about $1 billion every three weeks. So why is the Trudeau government stopping this pipeline from happening? It's not like Canada doesn't have pipelines. We already have 425,855 kilometers of pipelines in Canada. They run through Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, all extremely highly populated areas and also highly protected areas. We have three other pipelines being built, Keystone, Enbridge, and the Trans Mountains. The only ones being stopped by this Bill C-48 tanker ban is the Eagle Spirit Pipeline, the one that would give 30 First Nations people a chance at complete financial freedom from Canada. While the Eagle Spirit Pipeline would be great for the tribes, another pipeline deal has been made for BC that would also be a huge advantage to the tribe. The Coastal Gas Link Pipeline is the largest private sector investment in Canadian history. Private sectors have already invested $40 billion into this project. We're talking about 670 kilometer pipeline that would take natural gas from Dawson Creek all the way to the, LG, the LNG Canada in Kitimat. The elected band councils of the tribes have been part of this project from the very beginning. They've guided the project and the pipeline routes have been changed to avoid areas that would hurt the tribes. Every single elected band council in BC has signed on to the project and have agreed that it's beneficial to the tribes. Jobs will be created. Money will actually go directly to the tribes. It's going to change the lives of the people living in these tribes. There are 20 tribes that will make significant amounts of money from this project. And these 20 tribes have signed agreement to make money from this project. The money will be, will be made just for allowing the pipeline to just go through their land. So they will get money for doing absolutely nothing. It's a huge advantage for them. The band council has also agreed to the pipeline because they can see it's a limited chance of causing any environmental damage. That's because this is a liquid gas that it's being channeled. So if there is a spill, the gas would actually just evaporate. Not only would the tribes get money from this, but jobs all the way across BC will be created. So just to sum this up, the pipeline is good for the private sector. It's good for the tribes and it's good for British Columbia. 
And on top of all that, it has little environmental risk. So here's the news from this week. Last weekend, we saw on the news police taking away chiefs who were protesting the pipeline. So if you turned into the news, you would think all the tribal people are against these mean, dirty oil people who are going in, traipsing through their land and just taking stuff. That's absolutely not the story here. What happened was 14 people were arrested when they blocked the pipeline. So 20 democratically elected whole band councils all agreed and signed the agreements after years of negotiations. But 14 people can stand in the way and stop the whole thing. Here's the other thing. The news said that they were chiefs. Well, they're hereditary chiefs, which means they were not elected by the tribe, so they do not represent the people. But a Supreme Court ruling in 1997 gave hereditary chiefs a voice in the debate. But really, the debate is done. Agreements have been signed. We're ready to go through with this now. But then there's another side note. There are some very legitimate accusations that it's American environmentalist groups who have paid these hereditary chiefs to stop the pipeline. Now remember, America makes billions of dollars because we don't have a pipeline. If it's true that these protesters are being paid by environmental groups to stop this pipeline, it's one more example of how extremely unethical the environmental movement is. They would use chiefs because they know in our politically correct world, people are afraid to disagree with an indigenous person on the risk of being called racist. So they're using them, actually literally using the color of their skin and their ancestry to stop something that will bring financial security to that exact same group of people. They are stopping the tribes from finally having financial freedom from the government and they're using tribal people as pawns to do that. It's actually the worst kind of racism. In the meantime, we will just continue getting our oil from places like Saudi Arabia. Which brings me, of course, to our next story. So last Saturday, an 18-year-old girl named Rahaf arrived in Thailand. She claimed to be a refugee and was fleeing her family in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. Her passport was taken from her and she was told she must return to Saudi Arabia the next day. But she was given a hotel room for the night. She then barred herself in the hotel room and began to use Twitter to tell the world her life was in danger. I personally began to follow these tweets and I was impressed with how well she articulated her problem. Then her father and brother arrived in Thailand and were demanding to see her. She refused. And at one point, a video surfaced of Saudi Arabia officials telling the Thailand officials they should have taken her phone away and not her passport. Around the world, people began to demand that she be allowed to claim refugee status. And Canada stepped up and by the end of the weekend, she was given the okay to come to Canada. This did not end her plight. The online threats to her life have continued, so even here in Canada, she has to have bodyguards. Now, there's a couple of questions I have with this case, but first I want to say that I 100% agree here with Justin Trudeau's actions to bring her to Canada. This is the exact type of refugee we should have in Canada, and the reason we have a refugee program. 
So while I do have criticisms about what happened, none of my criticisms are about bringing her here to Canada. I am glad this is her home now. But my concerns, first of all, why was this addressed and fixed in a matter of one weekend? If you recall, we have two young adopted children in Africa that have been officially adopted and are simply waiting for the okay to come home with their new families. The little girl had to be returned to the orphanage because her family couldn't stay in Africa any longer. And the little boy is with his parents, but they have to take turns flying back and forth. In fact, yesterday, the mother flew back to Africa where the father has been staying with the boy. And the father will tomorrow return to Canada, leaving his wife and son in Africa. How long can this go on? It's been months. The media has been covering, but nothing has been done. So how come in the case of the girl, the problem is solved in a weekend, but in the case of some adopted children from Africa, it seems the government is refusing to give the children permission to come home. My second concern is Asia Bibi. Now, this is another refugee whose life is at risk and who needs to have a new home. Now, I have heard from some government officials that the plan is for her to come to North America. However, when she arrives, it'll be a secret and there'll be no press conference. This is because her life is at risk no matter where in the world she goes. And from what I've heard, she might already be in Canada. And this makes sense, and it is what should have happened in the case of this 18-year-old girl. Instead, she's been paraded around like a trophy by the Liberal government, and this has put her life at risk. She's 18, and while she's clearly very smart, she may not see that she is being exploited by a government that's running for election, a government that's been accused of being soft on extreme Islamists. The same government that has allowed returning ISIS fighters to come to Canada with no consequences for their actions is now trying to prove that they care about the victims of extreme Islamists. One person who's been speaking out about this whole thing is a woman who goes by one godless woman. Now, I discovered this podcast a few weeks ago and also her YouTube channel. Now, this is a woman who is an atheist. So while we would not agree on theology, she has a very important view on Islam. This is a woman who grew up in Saudi Arabia and also fled her family and came to Canada for freedom. She tells her stories of growing up in Saudi Arabia with her family. Now, these are not stories to listen to with your children. They are horrifying. But if you want to know what life really is like in Saudi Arabia, these are the stories you need to hear. In her latest video, one godless woman is warning this 18-year-old girl. And she says the same media loving on her is the media that calls ex-Muslims Islamophobic and right-wing. The same government that saved her life is the government that seems to be bringing Sharia law to Canada. This is the question I have for our media and our government. If Sharia law is fine, and I'm a bigot for believing that it's not fine, why does this girl need to be rescued? If she's an 18-year-old girl running away from home because she doesn't like her parents' rules, that's not a refugee. But if she's an 18-year-old girl fleeing Sharia law because she's going to be killed for leaving Islam, then she is a refugee. But also, Sharia law is bad. You can't say she is a refugee and at the same time say that Sharia law is good. Both of these things cannot be true at the same time. One of the latest One Godless Woman podcasts 
we hear the story of a place in Saudi Arabia literally called Chop Chop Square. It's a shopping market near the large mosque and in the center of the square you find large drains and these are used to drain the blood from the public beheadings, public eye gougings and public amputations. On Friday after the call of prayer crowds will gather to watch the punishments being given out. This is where public whippings take place as well and I've seen videos and pictures of these. These are the kinds of pictures that stay in your head forever. The people are killed here, often with no trial. They can be accused of anything from sexual sin to witchcraft, and usually things can't be proven. This is such a large part of the culture in Saudi Arabia that there is infrastructure built into the market to drain the blood. I mean, just think about that for a minute. It's also such a significant part of their culture that people continue to shop and just ignore the torture of the victims. I mean, imagine shopping for some new silk while a young man has his eyes gouged out or his arm chopped off just a few feet away. Imagine looking for a good deal on some new dishes while a teenage girl is publicly whipped or worse, a man is beheaded. Imagine being so used to this that you just continue shopping. For us in Canada, it seems impossible. How could they be so cold and heartless? Well, it becomes such a part of their culture that they believe it's the right thing to do. And don't kid yourselves. Canadians would do the same thing if we were educated in the same culture. If you don't believe me, here in Canada, we have tiny humans who are killed every day. In the town where I live, it happens every Tuesday. That's because there's no doctors in my town who are willing to do it. So our government flies in doctors every Tuesday a doctor who's okay with killing these tiny humans. And I am of course talking about abortion. The process of abortion ends with laying out all the tiny body parts on a tray and making sure you have all the parts of that tiny body. The limbs that have been pulled apart from the body and the tiny head that's been crushed and the brain drained. Yet here in Canada, most people have been trained to believe this is okay. Not only okay, but even the right thing to do. In fact, if you stand up and say this is wrong, you will probably face extreme hatred. I learned this week of a young teen girl who used my videos from my a website to learn about the pro-life argument and then presented it to her class. When her argument could not be defeated, a boy in her class said, wait until you're raped, then you'll be pro-abortion. Now, in this situation, you would think the boy would be in trouble. I mean, it sounds to me like he could even be threatening the girl. But no, it was the girl who ended up in trouble. And she was not allowed to continue the conversation because she had stressed this boy out. And that makes no sense. Churches are pretty much mute on this topic. In fact, I hear from people asking, why do I talk about it so much? I mean, it gets old. I'm still talking about it because it's still happening. So yeah, a culture can become a culture that is fine with death. We can go about our business and ignore what's happening around us because you just become used to it and it doesn't bother you anymore. This weekend, the March for Life will be in DC. It'll mostly be ignored by the media or the numbers will be downplayed. It's tomorrow on Friday. If you're on social media, find it and follow it. See the pictures of the people standing up for life. Ben Shapiro will be the keynote speaker, so listen to his speech. I'm sure it will be amazing. Be motivated to stand for life. 
Our last story is also about our society being desensitized to horror. When I first started posting stories with the caption, stop normalizing pedophilia, I received pushback by people who said no one is trying to normalize pedophilia. Everyone thinks this is horrible and everyone is against it. But I don't get that anymore because people are starting to see that the normification of this is starting to seep into our society. This started with this first really creepy man getting some airtime talking about men who are attracted to children are being persecuted, how they're the last sexual orientation to not have rights. To be fair, pretty much everyone was shocked by this and every single person I saw post about it said the man was creepy and this was not a sexual orientation. But just the simple fact that any network thought this was a story worth sharing is a warning sign. And since that story aired a few months ago, it's only gone downhill. An 11 year old boy named Desmond was the highlight dancer at a gay bar. He dressed in drag and danced extremely sexual while adult men threw money at him. This dance took place at three o'clock in the morning at a gay bar. While many people were extremely outraged about it, others said it was no different than little girls being in beauty pageants. Now, while I have some serious problems with little girl beauty pageants, and I mean serious problems, this is not the same. At a bar at three in the morning, performing for adult men as a highlight dancer while they throw money at him. The fact that this was excused in any way is horrifying. Then in Canada, a 10 year old boy named Nemes, who goes by Lactitia, was photographed in a drag next to a naked man. This was for Hutch magazine, and in the photo shoot, they had the winner of season seven of the RuPaul show stand nude, smiling and leaning into this 10-year-old boy, while this 10-year-old boy is dressed in a little black dress and two side buns has his mouth wide open in a large smile. It's clearly a sexual image and the worst kind. It's straight up child porn, and it was taken while his parents watched. How is every single adult in that room not in prison right now? And now, how is that child not getting help? Why is no one stepping up for this 10-year-old little boy? Why? Because we are now desensitized to it. Even though we're all clearly uncomfortable with it, we're afraid to say anything against it because we don't want to seem anti-gay or anti-trans. But that slippery slope we were warned about, it's here. And the things everyone said they would not be okay with, that red line we said society would not cross, has been crossed. Then a story came out from BC that to me is the example of where we're all headed. Here's what happened. So a mother found out a 28-year-old man had been sexting her 13-year-old daughter. So the mother and her husband, who is the girl's stepfather, went to the police. And the police did nothing. They didn't look for the man, they didn't press charges, nothing. Then the parents, they talked to their daughter about what was happening, they tried to set up some guidelines to make sure it wouldn't happen again. But in a few weeks, the mother found text from the same man once again, but in a more secret area on the phone. The man was clearly trying to lure their daughter into human trafficking. The mother again took the phone to the police to show them, and the police did nothing. In fact, they seem annoyed that the mother was bothering them. The parents didn't know what to do. Clearly, their 13-year-old daughter was at risk of becoming a victim of human trafficking, which is actually becoming an epidemic in Canada and something people 
just don't want to talk about. The parents had to do something before their daughter was gone. A family friend agreed to help them. So they used their daughter's phone to tell the man no one would be home and he could come and see her. Now, if this sounds familiar, this is what was done in a show to catch a predator, where the police would pretend to be 13-year-old girls and then the grown men would come for sex and they would be arrested. So the parents and the family friend decided to do this exact same thing but themselves. They waited for the man to come. When he showed up at their house, they tackled him and tied him up with zip ties. Then they called the police. So to sum up, they went to the police twice with the guy's name and picture. And when the police could not be bothered to do anything, they caught the guy themselves and then called the police to come and pick him up. But the police arrested the parents and the family friend instead. And this week, the three people had to plead guilty in order to get a lesser charge. If they don't do anything in the next six months, they won't have a police record. So let's just sum this up. A parent takes her child to a bar in the middle of the night to dance half naked for men. Totally okay. A parent takes her child to a photo shoot and the child is photographed sexually with the naked man. All right, totally fine. A parent catches a man trying to have sex with her child, tackles the man and ties him up and calls the police. That's the parents we arrest. We don't do anything to the parents taking their kid to a bar in the middle of the night to dance. We don't do anything to the parent taking their child to a photo shoot to be photographed with a naked man. No, we arrest the parent who catches the person trying to sexually assault their child. Okay, can we all agree that our society is trying to normalize pedophilia? What is going on with our society? How have we sunk so low? How does this happen? It started when we walked away from the values that founded our nation through Judeo-Christian values that are the foundation of our Western society. And the only way that we can bring our society out of this horrible situation that we are in right now is to go back and embrace the values that we had at the founding of our nation. So we're going to close this podcast the same way we close every podcast, with the good news of Jesus Christ. God loves you. He loves you and he created you for a purpose. He wants to be in a relationship with you. In your sin, you've turned away from him, but in his love, he has taken the punishment for your sins on himself and he's calling you right now. He wants to be in a relationship with you. To do that, you just pray, you just talk to God. Tell him you're sorry for your sin. Ask him to forgive you. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he can do what he says he can do. Believe that Jesus is God and he alone can save you from your sin. Save you from the control sin has in your life and save you from the punishment of sin. And if you did that, email me because I really want to know. I would love to hear from you. I would be counted a privilege to hear from you. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, visit lauraleesemans.com for more podcasts, blogs, and videos.